Um, we are in a series we call Faith Fundamentals, and for seven weeks we're looking at Mark 10, um, the story of the rich young ruler. And, and as I looked at that, I realized there are six or seven themes that come out of that passage that, to me, in my mind, highlight what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Three weeks ago, we looked at the whole idea of that God's more interested in our heart than our external actions. He sees the heart. That's why Jesus reinterpreted the commands. You know, he says you say you shall not murder, but I say if you hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. Two weeks ago, we looked at the idea of what is really sin. And I think oftentimes we think of sin as breaking a commandment, but I think what the story of the rich young ruler suggests that sin is something much deeper. Sin is fundamentally a misplaced love. When we love the wrong things rather than loving God, that leads us to all kinds of things that we do wrong. That sin is something much deeper. It's, it's, it's a misplaced love. Our primary love is not right. Then last week, we looked at the whole issue of money that, you know, Jesus told the rich young ruler to go sell all they had. And I think what Scripture was teaching was there is that that money is the ultimate trap that catches hold of us and it's very hard for us to tell whether we love God more or money more. And, and history tells us that's true, that the Christian church, wherever it has existed in a culture of affluence for a long period of time, always loses its effectiveness. Why? Because when you have money, we think, oh, I got all kinds of choices. I can manage my life. And, and, and so Jesus is warning us there that money is the ultimate trap, and it's very hard sometimes to distinguish where are our priorities when it comes to us and how we use it. And so how we use our money is an indication of how, a, re, a very clear reflection of how deeply we love God. This week, we're kind of picking up on, 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 on the compassion theme, and we're looking at kind of the issue of, he said, go sell what you have, but give it to the poor. Give it to the poor. Well, I don't know if you notice any similarities between the two texts that Suellen read today, the rich young ruler and the lawyer scribe. They both came to Jesus and they asked the identical question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the focus of that question is what we do as people to earn God's favor. You know, and, and that's always the question of any religion. What do I have to do to please God? You know, and the burden's on the person to figure out what God wants so that we would please him and that he would welcome us into heaven or paradise or or in union with the divine essence, whatever it is, our religion comes back around. It's always about what do we do to please God? And obviously we've talked about this following Jesus. is about a relationship with God that is made possible not by what we do, but what, by what God and Jesus has done at the cross. So these two men, they approach Jesus for different reasons, even though they ask the same question. The rich young ruler approached Jesus sincerely, seeking to understand what it means to follow God. And our text tells us that Jesus loved him for his sincerity. Luke points out, though, that the lawyer, the scribe, only approached Jesus, asking the same question, to try to test or trap him. He wanted to expose Jesus, belittle him in the eyes of the people. So Jesus asked him something a little different. He says, okay. You know, so why don't you summarize the law? What is the, how do you summarize the law? And any good Jew of the day would have known how to summarize it. It's, it's reflected in those true truths. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and those truths teach us that the law is not really about a set of rules, but is fundamentally an attitude of our heart and mind. But the lawyer is not content with that answer. You know, he, he wants to know the bottom line. He's saying, Jesus, tell me what it really, I, I really have to do to please and satisfy God. He wasn't going to let go of that. So in both stories, how we love God comes back to the issue of how we love our neighbor. You know, in Luke account, the lawyer brings it back to the issue of loving your neighbor when he says, who is my neighbor? In the case of the rich young ruler, Jesus brings it back to loving your neighbor when he says, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Now in that account, we could ask why Jesus just didn't tell the man, you love money more than you love God. And that, I mean, that's basically what he's saying in some ways. But Jesus was making another point. The proof that you love God is how you use your money to care for your neighbor, and especially the poor. How do you use your money to care for your neighbor? If you truly love God, and so I think what our text is pointing out to us, and both texts are saying, if you truly love God and Jesus, caring for the poor is a real proof of that love. In other words, caring for the poor is not optional as a follower of Jesus. It's supposed to be a fundamental characteristic of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, the church in America has often throughout history not embraced that truth. Either the poor have been completely ignored by and large, or the church has taught that, yeah, it's a good thing to care for the poor, but it's not one of the most important things we do. You know, there's an interesting quote line in all four Gospels. In all four Gospels, they tell the story of how a woman anointed Jesus with perfume, you know, in, in the days just before the triumphal entry. And, and all the disciples in all four stories were aghast that they would waste this money, and they said, we should take the money, the oil and perfume, and sell it and give it to the poor. And then Jesus makes this line in all four Gospels, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I will never forget when a pastor in my home church one evening said, quoted that verse and said, we don't have to worry about the poor. Jesus said the poor will always be with us. And I thought, oh, that doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> but I don't think I fully understand the implication of that for, for many, many decades after that. You know, there were two noticeable trends in, in America in the 20th century that highlight this perspective. You know, in 1950s, church attendance reached its peak in America. And in the major cities, there were many large churches faithfully preaching the gospel. But as the poor and as various cultural minorities moved into the city, those churches began to migrate out to the suburbs because the people who were going to the churches wanted to move and raise their families in safety in the suburbs and understand that. And so the churches followed, really leaving the cities behind, leaving the poor behind. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, there developed a kind of defined split in the church. Liberal churches began abandoned the notion that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, and relationship is only possible through faith in Jesus. And they began to focus on caring for the poor. The conservative gospel preaching churches kind of didn't want to identify that way, so they kind of pulled back. And they just began focusing and preaching on the gospel and evangelism and saving souls, quote-unquote. 
In many ways, as we look at the scriptures, both were wrong because they separated the two things. Faith in Jesus and caring for the poor. Listen again what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. You lack one thing, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Two things. Follow Jesus, faith in him, care for the poor. They're not separate. You're saying they're both are intimately linked. In Scripture, caring for the poor, I don't think, is optional. And it goes all the way back through the Old Testament. You know, the Mosaic Law was unique in, 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 in legal systems of the time and even in modern legal systems until very lately because the Mosaic Law had provisions to provide for the poor, the marginalized people in society, referring to them as the widows, the orphan, and the foreigners in their midst. Deuteronomy 10.18 describes God's mindset this way. The Lord defends the rights of the orphans and widows. He cares for foreigners and gives them food and clothing. Now think about how that phrase translates to today. Most families living below the poverty line are single-income families headed by a woman. Almost everybody living below the poverty line is a single woman caring and raising children. Think about all the children that need foster care and then reflect on the crisis of refugees and immigrants in this country. Those are the foreigners in our midst. How do we care for refugees and immigrants? Think about all the elderly that can't even afford to buy food they need to eat in a healthy way. God's people are supposed to be involved with them and caring for them. It's really not optional. You know, the prophets condemned Israel for failing to take care of the poor and for injustice. Isaiah admonishes the Israelites, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In Matthew 25, Jesus, in some of the clearest words yet, tells us that when he returns, he will judge those of us who claim to follow Jesus and love God based upon how we feed the poor, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit those in prison. In many of his parables, Jesus speaks about a, a banquet, and oftentimes he'll say this, as he does in Luke 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. James 2 tells us to care for the poor, the hungry, the destitute, saying that faith without works is dead. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3.18, Children, show your love for others by truly helping them, not merely by talking about it. You see, for followers of Jesus, caring for the poor and marginalized is not really optional. So Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And I think in his story, what he's doing is explaining what it really means to care for the poor. You know, it was understood in Jesus' day, if you traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho along that road, that robbery was very common. So you always traveled in groups. Jesus, when he walked that road, was with a group of his disciples. You know, when Mary and, and, and Joseph took the young Jesus down to Jerusalem, they traveled in a caravan from Nazareth in the area. They traveled along that road in a group. And so a man traveling alone is attacked and robbed and left for dead. Now, the assumption of the story is he is a Jew. A priest and a Levite pass by, and they walk to the other side of the road. You know, have you ever seen someone do that? When you see someone on this side of the road, they go, oh, walk to the other side of the road. You know, they weren't going to stop. And then it's a Samaritan who stops. 
Now, we know Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds, half-Jewish, intermarried with the faith of the land. They kind of corrupted the Jewish faith. They were not liked by all good Jews. You know, even in John 8, when Jesus was having a confrontation with some of the religious leaders, they turned to Jesus and accused him of being called a Samaritan. You know, that was the ultimate put-down. This Samaritan, who supposedly would ignore a wounded Jew, sees him. What does he do? He gets off his animal that he's riding. He cleans and disinfects the wounds. He bandages his wounds. He gives him a ride, brought him to an inn in the closest town, gives some money to the innkeeper to keep him there for a couple days and to feed him and promises to come back and check on him. And if he needs more money, he would offer more. That would have been an outrageous story in Jesus' day that would provoke a strong reaction in the mind and heart of anybody, serious-minded Jew. Only the Samaritan stopped to help. So Jesus asks the lawyer, who was the real neighbor? And he's forced to admit it was the Samaritan who showed mercy. He was the real neighbor. So I, I, in caring for the poor, if it's not optional, I think this parable tells us a few things about what it means to care for the poor. First, our neighbor is anyone we encounter in life. The lawyer thought that his neighbor was someone he was familiar with, a new part of his community. And I think that's how often we think of our neighbor. Our neighbor is someone we live by or someone that we are familiar with, that we're comfortable with, that we go to church with or whatever it is. But this Jesus is saying our neighbor is not just somebody we know or someone who's a part of our community or our church. A neighbor is anyone we encounter in life, in any location. A neighbor is anyone we encounter in life. So we can't just limit our care and love to the people we know, to the people in the church, but we're expected to share it with anyone in need whom we encounter, even if we don't really know them. Second, Jesus is kind of saying this, I think. Caring for the marginalized is about more than just giving money, but it requires personal involvement. It requires personal involvement. You know, most people who have been marginalized in society have not lived in a healthy, nurturing environment. They often don't know how to live a healthy life. They don't know how to trust others because they've been betrayed or taken advantage of by others. And money alone is not all that they need. They need people to come around them to respect them, to treat them in a right way so they begin to trust others and feel valued and significant as a person. The wounded man in the story needs more than just money. He needed someone to help him treat his wounds, to help him get to a town where he could rest and feel safety. He needed the help and care of another person. You know, when I pastored in Revere, it was a kind of a different situation from here in Chelmsford. We usually had two or three people that would come to the door of the church looking for help most weeks. And when I came there, the church had, a, a, it would give out $25 gift certificates to Market Basket. But I soon realized that most who needed the money didn't really know how to use it. They would buy soda or Oreos or things like that, you know, things they crave. And, and it didn't go very far. I soon realized by giving them no certificate, I really wasn't helping them. What I needed to do was to take them to the store, help them buy the food. And back in the early 1990s, believe it or not, $25, I could buy enough basic food for them that they could feed a family of four for two or three days and live healthy. But they didn't know how to shop. 
They didn't have those skills. They didn't know how to do it. And then I realized that I needed to try to figure out who had a real need and who was just scamming and looking for a freebie. <laughs> because I heard very quickly the word pass through town. Oh, yeah, the, that church over there gives food certificates. <laughs> and so it, it increased the number of people that would come to the door. And, and so someone, you know, so the ones who really needed help would let me take them to the store and buy the food for them. The ones who didn't, who were just scamming, no, no, you don't need to do that. Just, you know, just, just give them a certificate of the money. They're the ones that never got it. <laughs> but, you know, what we're doing is we're simply reinforcing. If we give them money when they're scamming, we're just simply reinforcing a negative and dysfunctional lifestyle. So when you see someone at the intersection, you know, stop with a sign up, homeless, helping money, and you give them, you have no idea whether you're really helping them or hurting them. Most people struggling in life are isolated, lonely, and feeling helpless. They need more than just money or some handout. They need someone to come alongside of them, to walk with them, encourage them to build a sense of trust and value, and that takes personal involvement. You know, when you start getting involved with people like that, and, and it's very easy to grow discouraged and burn out when you seek to help the poor or the marginalized or struggling. Why? Because the need seems so overwhelming, you know, at times that it seems hopeless. Often the reality hits home when you try to help someone, but you really can't help them. And you realize you can't help them unless they want to be helped. So you try to help, but the person walks away or refuses help or refuses to work at it or refuses to make any changes. And so the question we always have to ask is, what is our motivation and dynamic that keeps you going and working at it? And I think the answer is, given to us by Jesus in the story of the Good Samaritan, where he wrote this, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You know, long-term help involvement has to be rooted in a deep sense of compassion. The Greek word, like the Hebrew word for compassion, literally means to be moved from your inner being, your womb, the bowels, with deep concern for the welfare of others. That's the compassion of God. That's why scripture always talks about he's always merciful, always forgiving. He doesn't give up on us. Because his compassion, he cares so deeply for us. That even when we goof up, move away, do the wrong things continually, he, he's right there. He doesn't give up on us. So the third thing this story is kind of telling us is to genuinely help someone, our motivation has to be rooted in a deep compassion for them as people. It can't just be because we want to help them, or it can't just be because we want to feel good because we're doing something. It's got to be something deeper. And that's how Jesus is described in the Gospels. You know, we read that responsive reading. He, it's always talked about he's moved with compassion. When Jesus encounters a leper early in his ministry, Mark describes Jesus this way. Moved with compassion, he reached out and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be healed. When Jesus talked to crowds out in the wilderness and they had no food, the disciples send them away so they can get their food. We can't help them. And it says Jesus is moved with compassion. And he asked the disciples to feed them. When Jesus saw the people who were struggling, Matthew describes this motivation this way. When he saw the crowds, what he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus saw the needs of the people. He had a compassion for them. He helped people far deeper, for far deeper reasons than just the immediacy of the need. 
He wasn't just helping to make himself better. He wasn't just reacting and giving free handouts of healing. He saw the deeper needs. People needed to see themselves differently. They needed to learn different approaches to life. So he spoke the truth. He met the physical needs. And as he met the physical needs, he didn't stop there. And because people knew he cared for them, they were willing to listen to his teachings and counsel about how to live. You know, that's how God is described in, in, in Lamentations. You know, through the Old Testament, he's described that way. He cares deeply for people and wants to help them. His faithfulness and love is the basis for the hymn we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The scriptures say this, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He cares for us and people so deeply that he cannot stop being faithful, loving, and merciful towards us. He knows we need help, and he'll do anything to do it. You know, we understand that that is what Jesus did for us. If we really understand that, that's what he did for us. You know, then it becomes natural for us to want to do the same for others. That has to be the motivation for serving the poor. That is the only thing that will sustain a person in the act of serving the marginalized with the right motivation without burning out. It comes out of that deep sense of compassion for their needs. And that is how the early church acted. You know, all through Acts, we're told that they continually sought to meet the needs of people, to care for them in tangible ways. In Acts 6, we're introduced to the concept of a deacon. You know, the Greek word for service is deacon. Some widows were not being fed and cared for in Jerusalem, and so the disciples summoned the church together, and they said it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God, to serve tables, but we still need to serve tables. And so what do they do? They go on to appoint some of the most capable and trustworthy people in the church at the time to make sure that all the widows in need were fed. Preach the gospel, care for people. The two go hand in hand. You know, if you read Paul's letters, you know that he was constantly seeking to raise money from the churches he planted to help the people in Jerusalem who were struggling because of famine and hardships they were enduring. Meeting the needs of people is how the early church gained credibility in mostly a pagan world. You know, if you think about Roman history, during the plagues and the fires in Rome, the Christians were the ones who stayed, exposing themselves to danger in order to care for people. Everyone else who had the means fled the city thinking only about themselves. The Christians showed great compassion for those who had no options. You know, the Emperor Julian, who only reigned for a few years after Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome, he was the only emperor that sought to fight Christianity and bring Rome back to the worship of pagan gods. And, and he built temples, and he, and he sought to enforce that, their worship. He came down hard on pagan priests who did not have the same higher moral standards modeled by Christian bishops. And he wanted them to perform acts of charity and provide for the poor the way the Christian did. Why? Because even he who completely opposed the Christian message recognized that caring for the poor was the main reason that the people turned to Christianity and embraced Jesus. They responded to the genuine compassion of Christ's followers, and as a result, they embraced the message of the gospel. Now, now think about what Jesus is telling us in the story of the rich young ruler and, and the Good Samaritan. 
You know, he, he, he's saying if we really love God and Jesus, caring for the poor is, is, is really proof of that love. If we understand the biblical story, we understand that caring for the poor is not optional. It was an integral part of how he ministered. He met people's needs. He invited them to follow him. Service and evangelism can't be separated. They go together. Both are needed. We're calling people to faith in Jesus, but we have to care for them in real ways. You know, an amazing thing to me is I've grown up in a church all my life, and I don't fully grasp that truth earlier. Why? Because almost no church that I've ever been a part of ever embraced that truth. It's been basically ignored. That's amazing to me when I think back on, on growing up in a church having known the Bible. And so the story of the Good Samaritan reminds us that our neighbor is anyone we encounter in life. God cares for everyone. And if we only reflect the gospel and what we're, you know, he cares for everyone. He expects that we'll care for anyone that we encounter in life. Jesus welcomed everyone. He's telling us the same. We do the same. And then, secondly, Jesus is telling us that caring for the marginalized is about more than just giving money, but requires personal involvement. Now, obviously, money is needed for people who are struggling in tangible ways, but money alone is not sufficient, and it won't encourage people to consider the truth of the gospel message. You know, it's well documented in our country that the government who gives out money via welfare system failed to lift people out of poverty and only kept them in poverty because they just gave them money. Money alone doesn't change people's lives. It, you know, people need more than money. And oftentimes churches, as I reflect back on my past, have limited their involvement to providing poor at gifts at Christmas, food supplies at Thanksgiving, backpacks at the start of the school year. Those are good things to do. I'm not saying they're wrong. But they are really insufficient because we're still divorced or separated from people's lives. There's no shared personal involvement. There's no building of loving, ongoing relationships with people. We're just giving them things. And while those things are good, and I'm not belittling those, those are things we should do, there needs to be something more to build those kind of relationships. That means churches need to support ministries like the Pregnancy Care Center or Living Waters or elsewhere where they are Christians coming alongside of people, building relationships, helping with needs. But then each church needs to look at the community and where they are, where the poor and marginalized is, and, and we should be investing people resources and financial resources not just with the people in our community, our faith, our church, but with people in the community that are not a part of our churches. Finally, Jesus is telling us in the story of the Good Samaritan, to genuinely help someone, our motivation has to be rooted in a deep compassion for them as people. You know, that motivation really comes from really understanding what Jesus did for us. He loved us with such a deep compassion. He was willing to leave heaven. He was willing to sacrifice everything to demonstrate his own love for us. If we don't understand that, his compassion is the motivation behind the cross, then we'll really never have the kind of compassion for other people we need encounter in life. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 8 that I read last week because I think it explains the, demonstrates the compassion of Jesus. 
you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. He sacrificed all to enrich our lives. That's the true extent of God's love and would know that we're genuinely cared for by God. He sacrificed it all. And so what is amazing is, as I said to you, is, you know, I've been a part of churches all my life, and, and you all here, as small as we are, have been a part of the first church I've ever seen that's really committed to going beyond. You know, yes, we did the normal things, Christmas gifts and backpacks, and those were good, but it began to shift when the men once a month went before COVID and, and cooked breakfast. But then it shifted again in COVID when you guys did 50 bag lunches for three years to hand out to the homeless. And then now for two and a half years, it was shifted again when we started with the Thursday night dinner church where we encounter people week after week, feeding but proclaiming Jesus for two and a half years. And we're just now beginning to see the real fruits of that. If you haven't been there for a while and you've come in the last two or three weeks, you'll be amazed at what's happened. You walk in and people are just talking with each other. The level of conversation, we've never seen that before. They immediately pick up the scriptures and begin to read even before they're fed. At the end, there are hugs and praying for people. You know, and that's the result of investing time over time, getting involved in people's lives. It's been absolutely amazing what you've done. Let me ask you one question, last question. Why is that so important today? Let me suggest this to you. We basically live in a culture that in many ways is similar to the pagan culture prevailed during the first three or four centuries of the church. Society, by and large, has rejected the basic premises of the Christian faith. People don't go to church. Numbers just continue to decline, church attendance. They reject the idea of absolute moral, religious, spiritual truth. It doesn't matter what you believe, what faith you choose. We live in an age where people believe there is no such truth. The church no longer really plays an important role in society. It's viewed mostly as irrelevant or a nice religious club for some people that they go to. Consequently, many people have no idea who Jesus really is, what the message is all about, and they're not inclined to listen to it. That was the world of the early church, and it's becoming our world more and more. So if, if how did the early church grow so rapidly and eventually change the Roman Empire? It welcomed and cared for people the widows, the orphans, the aliens, the downtrodden in society. They cared for them in tangible ways. And people began to listen to the message because they saw a lifestyle that was different. They saw genuine love and care. And it reflects the very simple truth. People will not listen or care what we say until they know that we care. And that takes personal involvement. So as long as we think that, oh, excuse me here, as long as we think that politics is the answer, we'll only contribute to the polarization that's taking place in our country, and we'll continue to misplace our trust, because government's not the answer, Jesus is the answer. 
While we have the rights and freedom to enter into political debate, the true answer to people's needs is not to be found in politics, but in the gospel message of Jesus Christ that's lived out. As long as we continue to make moral pronouncements as to what is right and wrong in our society and churches, we'll be viewed as judgmental and unloving and people won't listen to the message. As long as we continue to invest all our financial and people resources only into our own communities, people will ignore us as just being a nice private club with religious overtones. It will only be as we get beyond the walls, care for people who are struggling, whatever issues they may be, that people will begin to listen to the message. People will not listen or care for what we say until they know that we care. That is the simple truth behind the biblical message to care for the widows, the orphans, and the aliens in our midst. God cares about people. And until the church embraces that in a real tangible way, people in our culture are not going to hear the message of Jesus. Let me close with these words in the book of James. What good is it, my brothers? Somebody's phone is beeping or something. <laughs> Technology. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. <laughs>